okay? Uh, Luke chapter 12, and uh, we're halfway through Luke, and, and here's what we're going to see. Uh, Jesus is basically going to do this. He's going to continue to expose the hypocrisy of religion. Now, if you guys remember last week, right, Jesus had lunch with the Pharisee, and uh, as he had lunch with that Pharisee, it was basically this debate as to how righteousness is given to you. And the, the issue with the Pharisees was is they did all this external stuff, they exaggerated the external to appear more righteous when the issue was always your heart. So they had 613 Old Testament laws that they said, hey, we need more to. So they would add to even what God had given them in the nature of rules and laws in the Old Testament to point to the, the work of Jesus, which would, which would outdo all of that. And so um, here's what we got to get. No, no system outside of Christianity is going to bring you to God, right? Because every system outside of Christianity is a false belief that through merits, through works, through rights, through whatever achievements you have, you can somehow work up the ladder to fulfill a righteousness that is necessary to be in the presence of a holy right God, to be reconciled, made right with God when the wrath of God stands towards you, he appeases that in Jesus. So Christianity is the only one where you've got to substitute in your place for your sin so that you can be made right with God. And so it's not obligation as a Christian, it's delight. So, so we say all the time, you know, we're, we're people who are after pleasure, after joy, namely in the person and work of Jesus. And so Jesus, throughout this gospel of Luke, has been confronting these architects of this pagan apostate religion, right? He's constantly been going after them. And I said, this is why I love seeing Jesus in the Gospels. If you look at him, he's gentle, he's soft, he's kind with those who are keenly aware of their need for righteousness, their need for redemption, and he's really harsh with and really opposed to those who are proud, who in their pride think, hey, I've got it figured out, I've formed some sort of system where God and I can be okay based upon what I do. And so here he's going to continue to share with people basically, hey, beware of this. Hey, watch out for this false apostasy. Watch out for this false religion, which is really hypocritical. And we saw him come out of lunch last week and basically demonstrate that religion is not a noble attempt at being good to reach God and make ourselves better. It's the opposite. It actually damns you further. <laughs> How counterintuitive is that? The more that you try to earn and merit righteousness for yourself, the more it actually drives you away from the mercy and grace in Christ and further damns you and destruction is waiting for you. So this is why Jesus, I think, has, will always say, is more in common with the scum of society than the religious elite. He loves being around people that are just keenly aware of their need, who are destitute, who are separated from God. And so um, here Jesus is gonna get at it. And here's the thing, the hostility's built. It's been building over time. I think it's basically reached almost its fever pitch now where, where basically the, the religious elite are attributing all the works of Jesus to Satan himself. We saw that a couple weeks ago. And so uh, here's what's gonna happen in Luke 12 is they've been trying to get rid of him. Remember, they, Jesus left lunch last week. He goes, hey, I'm done with you. The, the self-righteous can only hear so much. And, and as he's leaving, now you've got these guys going after him, going, hey, let's try to catch him in something. Let's try to find a way to get rid of him because he's infringing on our God of religious love. He's infringing on our love of people liking us, of people building us up, of being seen by others in the external realities of righteousness that people think it. No one can see our wicked hearts. And so here's what happens in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, right, he's left lunch now in the middle of all of this, okay, as this is all happening, as it's all reaching a fever pitch, it says, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Okay, so you got to picture this. Jesus leaves his lunch with the Pharisees. He heads out, and there are thousands, so many thousands of people, and they so want to get in and listen to Jesus and hear from Jesus and kind of see what's going on. And here, here's why. Um, the, the religious elite were always around, right? They were always wherever Jesus was, and they were always trying to catch him in something, and this became almost entertainment for people. And so just like you'd want to get near the action of a show or you get want to near the action of a game, people are trying to get near because he didn't have an AV system, right? He didn't have a mic where he could plug into and talk. So everybody's trying to get as close as they can, so they're trampling one another to get get up to see the action. Just chaos. Okay, utter confusion. And as Jesus is doing this interesting, he doesn't talk to everybody. He zeroes in on a sect of people. He says first to his disciples. Now, this isn't the 12. A disciple is just a word for learner or a student. You see this throughout the gospel. So there's some people who were, you know, curious, some people on the fence, some people who wanted to know more but, but didn't. And, and Jesus is talking to those who genuinely care to know more about who Jesus is. That's who these disciples are. He's not going to cast his pearls before swine, right? He's not going to give what's precious to those who don't want what is precious. He's been doing that for 12 chapters. <laughs> so now he's moving towards the cross. He's going, hey, those of you who are genuinely interested in me, listen. Those of you who are genuinely concerned with me and my person and my deity and my lordship, listen up. And he says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The warning is, beware of these Pharisees who you think by their external works they appear so good, but understand, I know the internal workings of their heart. I know their motives are wicked. I know they want praise of man and not praise of God. I know they want to give themselves glory and they don't want to give me glory, so watch out for it. I know they're bullies. I know they're intimidating. I know they're trying to push this on you. And it was actually permeating a, a lot of people in that time and day. That's why he says, hey, it's like leaven, right? Leaven is that uh, old dough you put in new dough and then it permeates it and spreads everywhere. He's saying, hey, it's toxic, right? This apostate system of works righteousness, of you building up for yourself a tower where you look down on everybody else and you play God and your little kingdom, making your little verse instead of him rendering all the verdicts and being in control of your life, he says, that's so dangerous and it's permeating everywhere. So hey, you guys, beware of that. Watch out for that. You need to be careful of this religious system, which is hypocrisy. Don't get caught up in that. He's about internal transformation, not external conformity. Don't be deceived by it. They're not righteous. They're moral. So those of you who are still open to the gospel of the kingdom, you've got to be discerning as you listen to them. You've got to be discerning as you hear about this belief system permeating Jerusalem. Verse 2, he's going to say, basically, here's how you're careful. Nothing's covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark, it shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms, it shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after having nothing more that they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
So Jesus says, you watch out for this hypocrisy. You really watch out for any belief system outside of Christianity by fearing God, the God of the scriptures, the holy, righteous, sovereign God who made all things, who directs all things, who has authority over all things. You fear him. That's the first thing you do. And look at what he shows here. He says, you fear God by not fearing man. Well, what's the first way? You kind of roll back up into verse two, and it's by understanding that nothing is hidden that everything whispered in the secrets is gonna be screamed on the rooftops. Now, in those days, just so you understand this, all the houses were made out of like mud and, 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 and brick and mortar, so kind of soft walls, you could hear things. And so what people would do is they'd build in the, in the middle of their houses these rooms with cinder blocks and basically hard materials. So if you were inside there, you could whisper and no one could hear you. And then you had outside these staircases that went up to the rooftop, the roofs were flat, and they would actually make public announcements on rooftops. They would make proclamations, they would share news. And so he's basically demonstrating, given the analogy of these Pharisees, he's going, hey, listen, all these things that are internal in them that no one knows about, that no one can hear, one day it's gonna be broadcast either in this life or the life to come. That should create some uneasiness in some of us. Right, I mean, this is a weighty reality that he is laying before them. He's saying, you may think you can keep the sins of your inner heart concealed, but God sees all. He doesn't just see your external, he sees every intrinsic, wicked, dependent thought, deed, right, that you think you have apart from Christ that goes on in your soul that no one knows about. So so don't fear these guys. Fear the one who sees into the inner workings of your soul. That's the one you should fear. Don't fear these guys. They're all external. Now, I want to camp out just for a minute here because this should create a little bit of uneasiness in you if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Because what he's describing here, what he's saying is, I want you just to consider this. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing. Consider that. Like, you can't camouflage yourself from God. And here's the thing. Whether you're chasing hard after God or you are totally indifferent to the things of God, it remains the same. So maybe you're here going, man, look at my pursuit. Look at the ways that I chase Jesus. And yet, if we were honest, if we broadcast all the things that you thought, all your doubts, all the things that you didn't say that you wanted to say, all the things that you didn't do that you wanted to do, how many of us would be easy in our chair? So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you look good on the outside. If you're a Christian who's chasing hard after God saying, hey, look at me, or you're totally indifferent to the things of God who knows inner workings of your soul, all is laid bare before him. So it drives the person indifferent to God and who loves God to holiness outside of themselves because they realize the only way they can have it is who God sends in Jesus who sees all things. So don't fear the people who only see external. Fear the one who sees all things and get the righteousness from the one who pays in full for even the secret deeds of your heart that no one will ever know about, ever. You've got no redemption, no hope out of someone who sees all those things, and here's what's amazing. He sees all those things. He hears all those things. They're broadcast in heaven for him to see, and yet he's still in that state, goes to the cross in your sin, and says, I'll carry those too. That wrath that's towards you, even in your secret sins, secret lusts, secret doubts, secret wantings, I'll die for those too, and I'll pay in full, and I'll rise again, validating that I am Lord, that I have authority, that it's been killed, and now you're going to walk and be driven in righteousness and holiness out of delight because I'm the God who sees all things and still loves you in that. 
But my fear is that many of us buy the lie that God just sees our external. We think God is just like our neighbor, right? He's just like our coworker. He's just like our spouse. If I can look a certain way and appear a certain way, even though my motives and everything else is off, I'll be okay. And he's saying, no, you fear God because God will make all things known. Jesus is also exposing the false God of fear of man. I just wanted to mention this quick because this is what, what these people are feeling. They're, they're feeling reasons to fear these religious elite because of what they're, they're pushing on them and oppressing them with and intimidating them with. And they were an intimidating group of people who could uphold externally laws and rules and look righteous. And, but here's what you're doing. Here's what Jesus is, is exposing is all of us have in, inwardly on the mantle of our hearts something that we hold in awe. And whatever you hold in awe is that thing that will be your God, so that will be the thing that you worship. And so if you fear people, if you fear their approval, if you fear what they'll do to you, then man is on the mantle of your heart because you hold them in awe and therefore you worship them. But, but here's the thing, unless God is on your heart, namely in the personal work of Jesus, you will have no unrest ever in your life because you are putting on your heart a functional God that will not work, will never be appeased, never be satisfied, and so unrest and angst will mark you the rest of your life until Jesus says, I do satisfy the angst, I satisfy the longings in Jesus, and you have him on the mantle of your heart as the God of your life who directs your steps, who directs your life, who's Lord of all things, man, then there's rest for you, but until then, then fear of man will sit on the throne of your life and you will be in constant angst, in constant. Now, it could be anyone unruly. It could be your boss. It could be, now, I'm not talking about the God-given authority he's put over you. I'm not talking about kids that you can like, well, I don't have to fear my parents because, no, 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 that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. I'm talking about no one that has business being on the mantle of your heart in worship, not letting that drive you. And fearing God and all his good commands that sit right here that you can hold in awe and worship rightly. So he's showing to these people, even your understanding of worship is off. Don't fear them, fear God. They're not getting away with anything. And I see all things. I see the inner workings of their hearts. Now here's what the gospel graciously does. I just want to just because hypocrisy, that, that really is just from that word to mean actor, like you're wearing a mask, right? So you fool everybody externally, but internally you don't fool anybody. Here's what the gospel graciously does, is it, it pulls you out from under that mask, the acting that you feel like you have to have to protect a persona that isn't you, which we talked about last week, only leads you to just an exhausting life, right? And he, he pulls you out of that, and he leads you to what's called the light of Jesus Christ, where he exposes everything, and here's what's amazing. In that exposure, right, being pulled out from the hypocrisy of trying to earn righteousness that's not yours, as he, as he pulls you into the light of Christ, and lays you bare, you can actually find healing in the light of Christ if you confess sin and find that he still loves you in your darkened demeanor in his lightened state. And if you don't confess sin as he draws you into the light, it leads to more brokenness and ultimately destruction. So, so that's what's beautiful about the good news of Jesus is that he actually takes away the need for you to protect a persona that isn't you. Like how many of you guys are living life right now just trying to be somebody you're not? I mean, even in the church community, it's so easy where it's like, okay, I got I to gotta look right. I got to act right. I got to, no, love Jesus and lean into him and let him form you from the inside out so you become holy, not an actor. 
where you're just like, oh, I can, I can do everything. I can raise my hands. I can act like I love my Bible. I can, right? We can all do that. Then you get in the inner workings of the soul and the motives of the heart. Only Jesus can access those. Only he can make you new. We're not about training behavior. We're about transforming lives. And so Jesus is doing all of that here. It's amazing. And then he says... In here, fear God, right? Okay, because he knows all things. He's going to lay everything bare. And because man can only kill you. Don't fear people because the worst thing they can do is kill you. Now, I know some of you guys are like, well, Pastor Mike, on the top of my bucket list is breathing. Like that, that's kind of big for me. Like what do you mean don't, how can Jesus just say, hey, don't fear them. They can just kill you. Well, here's what Jesus is, is basically saying. It's his way of saying some of you, are more afraid of kittens than lions. Right? So how silly would it be if somebody brought a kitten home and you freaked out and ran out of the house? You were terrified of them. And then someone brought a lion into your house and you smacked him in the face. Makes no sense, right? Jesus is saying that's what you're doing. You're, 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 you're scared of kittens, yet you're not afraid of the lion the lamb of Judah, the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain. You're not afraid of the one who can not only kill you but cast you into hell. That's a much worse death. You're afraid of only the one who can push you and interrogate you. And Jesus is saying here, it's worse to live a naive, hypocritical life and be judged by God for eternity and thrown into hell then suffer at the hands of men, but receive eternal glory. Amen. Right? Yeah. That's good news. Now, this is a great word for us, isn't it? A challenging word, a hard word, but, but a, a good word. And so this is what Jesus is saying for the non-Christian, right? If, if you're a non-Christian, you're currently separated from Jesus, you haven't trusted in him, that, that this is your heaven, that, that this is the best you will ever see. I mean, that's what he's describing here, that this is as good as it gets. Because what happens is, getting back to the fear of man and what you put on the throne is you act throughout your life like you are God. And so you predict the verdicts. You make your little verdicts of your little kingdom. And then one day you will die and face the real judge of the real kingdom and be judged by his judgments and be cast into conscious eternal torment. Apart from the saving work of Jesus, that is weighty. Maybe some of you, what keeps you from leaning into Jesus is what people will think, what culture will say. Or, and he's going, those are silly things. There's much more at stake here. Eternity's at stake here. And so for the Christian, though, brothers and sisters, it only gets better. This is our hell. And I love it. According to Paul, it's actually a promotion when you die. Right? To die is gain. And so all the angst, all the, all the interrogations, all the oppressive natures of people who don't understand the things of God, who will mock, who will ridicule, who will call us names, and when we stand on the truth, we know that, man, it's only going to get better, that eternity is coming, that future glory is coming. Now, some people just, I got to mention, some people don't believe in hell or think it's a temporary state. Um, Jesus is actually showing here by contrast, that's an illogical assumption, because if, if there's no eternal torment or there's no eternal hell, then really there's nothing God can do to you that man can't do to you. 
And he makes it clear here that this is after death. Just flip over to Matthew 18 real quick just to, to see this. Matthew 18, verse 8. Jesus says this about hell. He says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Here's what Jesus is saying. And those of you that are parents, I want you to think about this. And even if you're not parents, think about this. But first side, think about anything you do with your hands. It is better for me to never hold my son. It is better for me to never experience the joys of playing my favorite sport. Right? It's, it's better for me never to take my fingers and run them through my wife's hair than to do those things and be left outside the kingdom of God forever. And then he moves to your eyes. It's better for you never to do anything, never to see a sunset, never to see the beauty of God's creation, never to see your children playing and growing up and getting married. It's better to never see and witness incredible beauties that we can see with our eyes than see all those things and be found lacking on the day of judgment outside the kingdom of God. How horrible must hell be? I know there are many other texts that give other explanations and, and descriptions of it, but just those alone. I mean, just this is Jesus sharing these things. It's better for you to never touch, hold anything beautiful, experience any of the joys and common graces that God gives. It's better for you not to see any of the astounding, created beauty of God than do that your whole life and find yourself lacking at the end of all time. is why he's saying you should fear God because God can cast and judge that person to a far worse death than just what people can do. And we'll see more how that files in at the end. Look at verse six. Seems strange that he would say this here. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? You're like, what happened? What happened, Jesus? You just shift gears? I mean, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. Now, a lot of people think this is all about comfort when you're anxious, okay? Now, actually, that's later in verse 25. We're going to actually deal with anxiety and the ways that God cares for us. But right here, he's still talking about not only are no secrets unknown from God, he sees all things, not only does he have the right to cast into eternal fire, he also notices everything. Nothing slips his mind. I mean, sparrows were those worthless birds that poor people would pick up. They could buy five for two pennies. They'd skin it, cook it up, and eat it. People are going, man, who notices sparrows? Who cares about sparrows? You know God sees them all. Nothing goes past him without knowing it. His knowledge is endless. No one gave him a book to read about something he didn't know. He never had to teach himself anything new. He's just reiterating who you fear because his knowledge is infinite. He knows how many hairs are on the heads of over six billion heads, which over 150,000 hairs on every head. Because he's infinite in his perfections and all that he knows. So if there was anything God wouldn't care about or notice, it'd be sparrows, right? Nope. He sees those too. So no secrets are kept from him. He is the final authority over life and death. And his knowledge is infinite. 
So don't think I don't see the matters of your heart. That's the point. So, I mean, if, if he knows all that, don't think that he can't see in here. <laughs> don't think that you somehow escaped him. You got no camo that works. That's why I say a lot, church is the worst hobby in the world. It doesn't do anything, right? Like this doesn't do anything for you in the sense of earning anything righteous apart from Christ. These seats aren't magic. I'm not talking about the graces God gives through preaching, through singing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your rightness before God, what Jesus is getting at. And he's saying, don't think I don't see your hearts. But this is awesome. At this point, the nerves are kicking in, right? Well, how am I going to survive? I mean, if he knows everything, if he has a right not only to, to kill me, but kill me eternally, to sentence me to the second death, if he knows everything, I mean, he cares about those sparrows, he knows about all the hairs on six billion heads. I mean, man, how, how am I, I going to get out of this thing, right? If he knows everything about me, you realize that you're lacking, right? You, you realize in light of his holiness that you're exposed and there's nothing you can do. And I love that he says this here. Here comes the wonderful news. Fear not. Wait, you just told me to fear you. I'll explain. Fear not, for you are more valuable than sparrows. Okay, so here's the message to the Christian. If you fear God, if you fear everything he just laid before you, that there are no secrets you can run from, there's no corner you can hide in, there's no wall that's too thick, there's no clouds that are too high, if you know that he sees everything about you, and that he has the authority to cast into hell those who do not stand rightly before him, and he can do that with justice and full, what, what, full authority, and you know that he knows everything, that nothing slips his mind, if you, if you fear all of that, then don't be afraid. Do you see that? If you fear him, then don't fear. Because if he knows everything, then that includes him knowing you are his. So fear of him, right? Proverbs says the beginning of knowledge, right? If you fear him in a sense that leads you to salvation, that leads you to leaning into Jesus... Because all of us had a right, healthy awe of God. That's how we got saved. We saw his glory, saw his perfections, and God saved us in that state, which is just amazing. And as he saved you in that state, now we don't have to fear him in the condemning sense. Does he convict? Does he challenge? Yes. Does he condemn? No. Because we're more valuable than, than sparrows. He values us deeply, cares for us carefully deals with us tenderly as a good father. So if you fear him, that leads you to a place where you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid that he knows all your wicked, sinful thoughts because he purchased them all in Jesus. You don't have to fear that he can cast into hell because you're gonna be ransomed into glory. You don't have to fear that he knows all things because he knows that you are his. But the fear of the Lord is what gets you there. And if you are not his, if you do not fear God, and you do not fear that he uncovers every truth, and you do not fear that he can cast into hell, and you do not fear that he knows everything, then that is where you will be led. And that will be the end for you. This is a sober warning. But how do we know then that we know God and know we are his? That's the question he's going to answer in verse 8. So how do we know that? 
Verse eight, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, this is a sober warning to the religious. This is an attack at the religious because acknowledge really means just to confess. Those words are interchangeable. And what it means is the one who confesses me, the one who confesses Jesus in his person, in his works, in his lordship, in his deity. You confess those things. You acknowledge those things are true about him. And it's not just an acknowledgement with your mouth. It's an acknowledgement that's manifested publicly. So you manifest with your lips and with your life. This rolls back to Luke 9, right? If you're going to follow me, you lose your life. You don't sprinkle Jesus in. He takes over, right? You deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So, so you admit his lordship, not just with your lips. You demonstrate it in the way you live. So holiness is not just made internal. It's formed externally. This is amazing what Jesus is saying here. You confess his deity, his lordship, and then that's seen in your life. So Jesus is saying in the third person, the son of man, which is just God become man. It's taken from Daniel in this messianic prophecy that, that he would come and be the God become man. He's saying, hey, if you confess with your lips and your life my deity, my lordship, my who I am and my person and work, I'll confess before my angels in glory. If you don't, then I won't. Now, this is what the Pharisees weren't doing. They thought they could honor God yet curse Jesus. They thought they could love God somehow with their, with their laws and their acts, but somehow deny his deity. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's why back in um, you know, chapter 11, you're going to see, right, where they have a face-to-face conflict, and they're like, oh, you're from Satan. I see all your miracles. I see all your power, but you're not God. This is an indictment to the Pharisees as they tried to honor God and curse Jesus. You can't submit your life to God and not to Jesus. Now, Jesus follows this statement in verse 8 with something staggering. If you read it in verse 8, he says, If you confess with your lips and life of who he is, he's going to confess. You, he's going to acknowledge you. He's going to be, bear your witness before his angels in glory. <laughs> okay. I thought of Matthew 25. Matthew 25, you have this verse where it says that Jesus comes back in all his glory with all his angels, right? He's separating the sheep from the goats. It's really about really giving worship to God and caring for God. It's not just about feeding the poor and helping the poor. That's another sermon. But, but, but he says, hey, man, I was thirsty. You didn't care about me. I wanted something to drink. You didn't care about me. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. And, and so, hey, you're, you're going to be cast into eternal torment. And then, oh, you, those who are mine, hey, you guys saw me. You fed me. You loved me. You made much of me with your life. Hey, welcome to paradise. But look at what it says in verse 31. It should be on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separated the sheep from the goats. I don't know if you've ever pictured this. Forget you're in this room, okay? This is a boring room compared to the glory of God, okay? Imagine that you are seeing Jesus in his glory ascending. 
okay? And all his perfections. Glory is just worth, it's magnitude, it's infinite perfections, it's beauty, it's what you cannot muster up in your mind. And imagine that you are, you are seeing Jesus returning in all of his glory. And it doesn't just say in all of his glory. It says all the angels are with him. These are the angels that he's gonna confess you before before, if you confess that he is Lord with your life and lips. And, and I don't know if you've even thought about um, the, the, the number of angels here with all his angels. Revelation 5 says there's 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. Now listen, you've got 100 million, maybe more angels. Now listen, you haven't seen 100 million in anything. So if you guys are like, yeah, I can kind of see that. No, you can't. You, man, 100 million, you can't even fabricate that in your head. 100 million angels with Jesus in all his glory coming back, sitting on his throne, and he looks at you you and says, that's my son. That's my daughter who I purchased with my blood. Man, you don't care if ISIS is around. You don't care if that government's around. You don't care whatever was around you that was maybe forcing you not to acknowledge him or oppressing you or making fun of you or making a mockery of you. It doesn't matter in that moment because you've got the God in all his glory, which every knee will be bowing towards, Philippians 2.11, calling you out and confessing you to all his angels, 100 million angels going, hey, I bought him. Hey, I bought her. I mean, can you imagine what you'd be feeling? This is reality. Reality is not the mockery. Reality is not the oppression. The reality is not, I don't know if I can stand on the truth because I'm afraid what people will think or what people will say or what gun will be held on my head while I lose my freedom or who cares? Man, at the end, he's going to be in his glory going, hey, I'm going to confess you before all my angels. Which one takes the cake? I'll take the latter. profound truth. And on the flip side, how horrific if you don't. If you don't know him. If you don't acknowledge him and confess him with your life and lips. That he won't say paradise. He'll say judgment. And that's why verse 10 is so helpful. So helpful. Look at verse 10. That's how we're going to land the plane. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That seems odd. I'll explain it. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious how you should defend yourself and what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, Jesus first says, everyone who speaks against me, the Son of Man, third person, will be forgiven. How's that possible? Well, because no one would get saved if that is wholly true in the sense of all of us speak against Jesus before we're Christians. Jesus says repeatedly, you're either against me or you're for me. So there is forgiveness for those who speak against the Son of Man, who are against Christ, who reject Christ, because all of us before we're made new in Jesus are blasphemers. <laughs> all of us. And yet at some point, he makes you new in Jesus and forgives you of that sin. That's forgivable or no one would be saved. So before any of us are saved, we're guilty of not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. We're all guilty of not acknowledging him in his deity, in his works, in his lordship. Then he says... If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. Now, this verse has been misused, abused, and misapplied. 
Some of you thought, man, if I, if I had a bad thought about God, I've committed the unpardonable sin. No. Some of you thought, if I've denied him, I have. Well, no, Peter denied him. He was reconciled to God. Well, I don't know. I've doubted, so I've committed it. No, Thomas doubted. He was reconciled to God. Maybe it's suicide. No. Maybe it's some sexual sin. No. What he's getting at, what is it then that the Holy Spirit of God is what empowered the life of Jesus and testified the life of Jesus. You'll see this throughout the Gospels. And it revealed the salvation that is from Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit's job is illumination. 1 Corinthians 12 will say, you can't confess Jesus as Lord without the help and work of the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's saying. If you speak evil against the revelation given you from the Holy Spirit and you refuse to believe what the Holy Spirit's revealing to you, you can't be saved. You'll be lost forever. Because there's no other way to understand the truth. And this is what the Pharisees did. You have to understand it in light of that. They were seeing the testimony of Jesus revealed by the Holy Spirit. And what were they saying? You're not God. You're from Satan. I see your works. I see your miracles. They came face to face with him in Luke chapter 11. And they continued to deny all the way to killing him on a cross that he was not who the Holy Spirit was testifying him to be. That's to blaspheme the testifying work of the Holy Spirit. That's to renounce and deny the revelation, the illumination that the Holy Spirit reveals about who Jesus Christ is. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to continually and ongoingly throughout your life all the way to death being committed to that position. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe what the Holy Spirit is demonstrating in the life of Jesus. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the very testimony of who the Holy Spirit is. And the Pharisees did that all the way to killing him. Some of you are going, so you're saying I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit right now if I'm not a Christian and I'm going to hell? Well, yes. But you still have time. You have time to trust him, time to lean into him, time to see the glory that is Jesus in his person and work. But if you remain committed to that position until death or until his return, yes. There is no hope. You will be forever lost. So, so for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that the illumination has happened and God has saved us, do you realize you are a walking miracle? <laughs> I mean, the fact that you are not blaspheming the Holy Spirit still, do you realize you're a miracle? You're a walking miracle. Do you praise God for that? That the church is a miracle? That us here today is a miracle. Why in the world do we want to be here? Amen. If not for other things. So it serves as evidence. That was the commitment of the Pharisees all the way to the point of killing Jesus. And three days later, he rose, by the way, in case you don't know your Bible, to prove they're all wrong and validates that he is Jesus Christ, Lord, Judge Christ. And look at this beautiful promise. This is how we'll end. If you believe the gospel, right, if you acknowledge who Christ is in his deity, person, and work, if you do not renounce and reject the testifying nature of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus is and how he's revealed salvation, if you do not do that, 
The promise is the Holy Spirit of God will take up residence in you and sustain you every hour of your life to the end. Even in the darkest nights of your soul. Now, this couldn't be more appropriate for the season we're in, could it? With government decisions and laws and culture, could this not be more appropriate and helpful? Understand, the disciples, the people he's talking to, they got it. Because you know what happened if you violated Jewish religious law? They knew that you could be taken into the synagogue and held before the court. There'd be about 23 judges. And if you were guilty of violating a, a Jewish religious law, you could be lashed 39 times, and there'd be a judge sitting over you speaking a psalm or an Old Testament text, making sure you didn't go to 40, because you weren't supposed to get 40. It was the most embarrassing thing to go through as a new Christian. So when Jesus says this, they know what that's like. They're like our Pakistani brothers and sisters. They're like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who every day know they could be dragged before people who hate God and hate his good ruling. and could be slaughtered, could be mocked, and could be asked questions and be tempted to shrink back and not acknowledge Jesus. And here is what is amazing. Because I'm sure many of us fear today, right? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, what if I get dragged in front of government? Or what if I get dragged in front of ISIS? Or what if, what if I have a gun to my head? Or what if, what if, I mean, I know I'm capable of fear. I mean, what if I crumble? What if I don't acknowledge him as Christ and Lord? I mean, why, what, if, what if that happens? I mean, what if I'm not able to stand on the truth? What happens if all of my just inner self just overwhelms me? I mean, what if, you know, people, you know, want to make mockers of me? Or they ask them what I believe about marriage? Or what I believe about this? What I, I mean, how do I know I'm going to stand? How do I know I'm going to be able to stand firm? How do I know I'm not going to be overwhelmed with anxiety and not be able to defend myself? And this is so amazing. Jesus says to us today something profoundly comforting and courage-producing. The testimony of straight from the lips of Jesus is you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to be anxious about that. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to say in that very hour. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about if ISIS infiltrates your state or your neighborhood. Because I'm going to give you exactly what you need to say in that very moment. You don't need to fear how you're going to defend yourself. As government presses in and legislative law, and as we remain the people of God, committed to the truth of God, you don't need to worry. I'm your resident truth teacher. That is amazing to me. I got to that verse. I told Kristen like two days ago. I literally, I called her over. I was on the couch. I just said, can you just look at this verse? How, how, how encouraging is this verse? He will keep your faith alive even in the worst of scenarios, brothers and sisters. As culture changes and society changes, he will sustain your faith. 
He will teach you what to say to your neighbors. He'll teach you what to say to the unbelieving world. He'll teach you what to say to those over you. He'll teach you what to say in the face of terrorists. He'll teach you what to say. You don't need to be anxious about it. You will endure because the Holy Spirit will be there affirming your confession of Christ to the very end. You will not be able to stand in those moments or those hours because you're strong. It'll be because you're indwelt with a resonant truth teacher that's more powerful than your weaknesses. That will override you with the glory of Christ in those moments. So Jesus is saying to all of us to fear God so you don't have anything to fear. Confess Christ with your lips and your life and listen to the Holy Spirit of God. Um, we're gonna, this is why we're going to take communion because communion is a visible, a visible picture of this God who we fear and now don't need to fear because the wrath that was towards you was taken in this body and this blood that was broken and shed for you. So you come in courage to the table knowing that he paid the debt. You also come confessing his lordship, confessing his deity with your life and your lips as you come to the table. That's why Paul will say, if there's any unrepentant sin, to examine your heart and confess it before you ever do this. Because as Christians, we confess not just with our lips, but our lives. And that's why we enjoy doing this, because it's an ongoing public reminder of the grace and gift that's given in the person and work of Jesus. Praise God, he has satisfied Satan, sin, and death in Jesus. And that we can enjoy remembering and celebrating his person and work that gives us no fear in the day of trouble or the day of trial, because the Spirit will teach us. Let's ask him for that. God, thank you that you're at work. Thank you that you're at work in your people. Thank you that your people are filled with the resident truth teacher. God, would you lead us to a fear that is driven by awe of you and not awe of people? Would you replace in the mantle of our hearts your glory and your worth and your awe where he is not there? Would you help us to live lives that by our lips and by our life publicly manifest that we love you and know you? God, we're thankful that to be a Christian means to confess sin. So to be a hypocrite would mean that we don't confess sin. But God, we gladly acknowledge our sin knowing that you graciously forgive in Christ. Would you remind us of that today? Would you remind us as we take the Lord's Supper that you have given us your Holy Spirit that will enable us to stand firm in the worst of days ahead until you return and profess us, acknowledge us before all of your angels in your glory. Would that motivate us and give us great joy? In Jesus' name, amen.